Hello and welcome to another episode of Insightfully Speaking, a podcast by Cardec Group. I'm Adam Osborne and I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Anne Sinclair and Umberto Schubert, along with a special guest as we investigate recent events, news and other interesting things while looking at the world from a spiritist perspective. Our special guest today is Ingo Meyer from Germany. In this episode, we'll be looking at the Olympics, climate change, spiritism in Germany, and a prehistoric Brexit. But first, let's say hello to my co-hosts. Anne, Umberto, how are you both? Hi, everybody. It's lovely to be here again. I think time is just going on accelerated pace because it seems only yesterday we were recording the previous one. Uh, all is good. Thank you. I'm doing very well, Adam. Thank you very much. And I hope you guys are very well, too. Now is already time to bring on our guest. And so this time we have with us Ingo Meyer, who is an IT engineer from Munich in Germany, where he heads the Wegder Nachstenlieb Spiritus Group. Hello, Ingo. How are you? And how have you been during the pandemic? Yeah, hello, everybody. Very happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Well, if you ask me how I have been during the pandemic, actually very fine. It, I was very much on home office and I could use the additional time I had for lots of lots of studying. So over and all, I think, yeah, happy, nothing to complain. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Well, we are here to look at various things happening around the world. So let's start to look at some of the news. The Tokyo Olympics have taken place, bringing together athletes from around the world in a union of fraternal sport. With strict rules limiting spectators to being only members of the sporting committees, and with initial protests against the event by local residents, the 16-day sporting spectacular was seen by many around the world as a much-needed morale booster, especially with young children now eager to take up various sports including BMX and skateboarding. During his speech at the opening ceremony, the president of the International Olympic Committee, Thomas Bach, said, We need more solidarity, more solidarity among societies, and more sol solidarity within societies. Solidarity means much more than just respect or non discrimination. Solidarity means helping, sharing, caring. At the time of this recording, the Paralympics are about to start too, which will bring together athletes from all levels of ability and disability to also compete in the same frame of solidarity. Did any of you catch the Olympics, and has it inspired you or anyone you know to take up any new sport? I just like to... I, I did watch um, bits of the Olympic. Uh, of course, the time being from Japan to the UK, the time <laughs> fuse was, was a little bit uh, complicated. But one of the scenes from the Olympics that really touched my heart was uh, in the, I was watching the final of the men's high jumping and there were two um, persons with the same height and they, the judges were thinking, how could they do uh, you know, a, a, a tie off? How could they, they decide? And then one of the athletes said, can't we both get a gold medal? And then they, they looked and they looked into it and they said, yeah, of course, you can both get a gold medal. He said, well, 
that's what we think. We think that we both deserve the gold medal instead of one trying to be better than the other. And I thought that that was very inspiring for me. Uh, it was. I think it was nice to see something like that because the competition's important, but the fraternity and solidarity is also. And I think that that was a moment in which I saw that. Well, this year particularly, I was very stressed and overwhelmed by the work and the, the tasks I had to do. But I always loved the Olympic Games and uh, I studied in a military school as a, a teenager and uh, was a sort of amateur athlete <laughs> for many years. So I was always very passionate about sports. But uh, this year, for, for the first time, I could watch the Olympic Games through the eyes of my children and to see how inspiring it is for young children, how beautiful the experience can be for a six years old boy, for a 12 years old girl is uh, very different and at the same time also very elevating. It, it's something very beautiful to experience from uh, an outside perspective. Well, and to add from my side, uh, I mean, I find the idea of Olympia very wonderful. It's really bringing people together from all over the world. And and this idea, and in this way, the different people get to know each other. You get to know different ideas, different colors. You communicate with different ones. You make friends. And I think this is really the, the idea behind. And as long as this is in the foreground and not this want to win unconditionally and not this pursuit of commerce, if this remains in the background only, then I think it's really wonderful. And uh, I'm sure it all helps ourselves to integrate better in this world. And when you look at the Paralympics now, I think this is, again, a model idea and an event of inclusion and a wonderful sign for people with disabilities. So really excellent. I think uh, I just wanted to pick up on something that uh, Ingo said, and I think that this is relevant not only for the Olympics, but for everything in life. There are many different uh, aspects that are happening in the event, and it depends which event uh, which aspect we tune into so in the same event you will have people who are cheating uh, doing illegal things commercializing but you will have people who are doing beautiful things and, and uh, overcoming adversity and reaching out in teamwork in in solidarity to fellow athletes and uh, so when we connect and we look at it we this is a always like a theme for us when we look at things from a spiritual point of view is where are we connecting where are we focusing um our, our mind because in the same event we can focus on different aspects of it and if we focus on the positive aspects the good aspects we, we will be tuning into that channel if you like while we could at the same event we could be looking and tuning into unfortunate events and then showing that that's where we are vibrating. So in any situation, if we are uh, thinking, what are we connecting? Are we connecting to the positive side of the story or the negative one? That is our choice. And as we become more conscious and awake, then we start realizing that actually we can uh, see different aspects of the same event. 
uh, and then they, they, they can add to a good story or they can add to a bad story. And then we, we can be tuning into, let's say, the different vibration in that. And I think that's really helpful for us because if we do that on the material level, looking at um, the stories that are happening in front of us, this is happening even more on the spiritual level. Uh, and we always say, what are we connecting to? It's like, what, what news are we choosing to watch? What film are we choosing to watch? And uh, just uh, it made me think about that. So now looking at the ongoing pandemic, which is still with us and many people around the world are starting to accept that it may still be a few years until the situation is fully under control. Many countries are allowing international travel, whereas others are imposing or even reimposing travel bans to help stem outbreaks. In France, there have been demonstrations regarding the pass sanitaire, and in the UK, pandemic from the COVID track and trace system has caused delivery drivers to miss work and for shops to go empty. While some countries have high levels of double vaccinated people, and both the UK and USA are already stockpiling vaccines for usage later in the year, there are still many countries around the world struggling to get their first deliveries of vaccines. Scientists have made it clear that an equal level of vaccination delivery is needed around the world in order to have enough global immunity to reduce this from being a pandemic to an epidemic. What do we feel about this stockpiling of vaccines by certain countries, and can we be happy if we know others are suffering? Um, I am being offered next month a booster, uh, potentially, and this has made me think about it, because um, when we're learning to deal with the pandemic, we are also learning about our needs of human beings on this planet. So the idea that we are one humanity on one planet and we need to work in cooperation with one another is being like a, a narrative of philosophies or religions but now it's been brought to our daily lives because it's all very well if i am vaccinated and i have boosters but if my uh, neighbors in a different country are not vaccinated and the the virus is circulating new mutations will come up and then my vaccinations might not protect me against new mutations so in a way, almost from a, a selfish point of way, it forces us to say we can't ignore the suffering of our brothers and sisters because it will affect us in the future as well. So we can see at every point that there's an invitation uh, from the universe, from God, to say, look, you really need to think of yourselves as a whole family living on a planet because it, no longer can we think, oh, I'm okay you know, and put up the barriers and close the airports because it's not okay, it's not enough. We need to find a way to work together and those who have more to, to share it with those who have less or to help them develop their own, whatever it is. But it's just the invitation has gone from a point of view of a philosophy or, um, you know, as I say, a religion or, or a moral dis discourse to one of where it's quite a, a practical need. And I, I find that quite interesting to see that progress is inevitable and we are sort of thrust as, as a family, as a human family, into progress by these events. Yeah, I would, I would follow this. Uh, I see it in the, in the very same way. I mean, I mean this, this pandemic is really huge and strong and has really hit us strongly. 
but it's teaching us a lot. I mean, first within our neighborhood and within our country, we need to follow the rules, not only to protect us, but to protect the others, but even more the solidarity around the world. We are being forced to do that because as Anne rightly said, if we are vaccinated, but our neighbors in other countries not, then tomorrow we have, we have, uh, yeah, another, uh, another uh, kind of this viruses like the Delta, the Epsilon, whatever might follow at the end. So, and, and this is a strongly teaching, a strong lesson for us. And my view is people start understanding, but we haven't really fully understood really this. It seems such changes really take time and, and we are suffering, I think, almost two years already from this, from this pandemic and it will carry on. Let's say we are at the moment in Germany experiencing the start of the fourth wave and yeah, let's see how this further develops. Well, uh, here in Brazilian, we can finally see some light at the end of the tunnel. Things are, are getting better. They are not good, but they're improving. And this is uh, due to exclusively, exclusively to vaccination. And uh, because of that, it also helps uh, to fight one of our greatest social issues now, which is the the insane campaign against science and, and vaccination uh, that involves even the government itself and, and some authorities and a great number of celebrities and, and key figures in the country, also in other countries, of course. But um, since we, we have now the evidence that uh, it can solve the problem and it can abbreviate alleviate the situation that we are, uh, are living now. Uh, it is also an opportunity to learn something about how the world actually works and how important it, it is to be rational. And if I may add, there's a wonderful book I've just started to read. It's all about COVID-19. This is book is called On a Way to a world of regeneration. It has been uh, written, media, media written by Divaldo Franco, and it's coming from the spiritual world. And they, they, uh, they take their view from the spiritual world about uh, the situation with, with COVID-19, especially in Brazil. And it's really, really interesting. And we can really learn a lot. One, for example, one topic is the question, how can you get immune uh, about this, this virus? And well, you can get immune also if you spiritualize and if you develop your morale and your, your, your ethical way. So we call this from spiritism, at least in Germany, we call it inner transformation. So if you, uh, if you use prayer regularly, if you study, uh, if you study uh, good good books like this one or like the books of Kardec, and if you uh, if you trying to do good, trying to follow uh, yeah charity and this kind of stuff, then you have a spiritual inner 
immune system, if you like, which which protects you as well and which which will also help reducing the effect in case you are uh, you are infected by this virus. Yeah, because I think we need to take care on all levels, both the physical and the mental, spiritual level, and. No, it, it is quite concerning when we think that countries such as Australia and New Zealand, which would considered be, you know, first world countries, are still struggling to get their their vaccines delivered. New Zealand has only had two percent of the their population vaccinated already. Australia is a very low percentage, and they're having to buy their vaccines from countries such as Poland, and countries such as South Africa have not received a single dose and exactly we're looking at things like spiritism it helps us to understand that we have to have compassion we have to have compassion we have to care for each other and even if we know that for different reasons people aren't getting what they need materially we can at least send positive vibrations to help potentially help the governments and people to (laughs) to get deliveries sorted out get the trucks back on the road but uh, another thought that uh, has crossed my mind a couple of times is uh, this uh, this disease and this times we're living it's it's challenging our way of living Uh, it's shaking it to the core and people are questioning uh, at least here in the UK a lot of people are questioning themselves what's important you know uh, people are saying, I don't want to live in a big city like London anymore. I want to live in the countryside because I can work from home. I don't need to be there to work. I want to have a house with a garden. I want to plant my vegetables. I want to have some control on, on those basics of my life because that's more important to me than you know than to be in the center of a big city. So just some changes in perception of what is important and um, what people want to do with their lives. And I, it just brings me to the thought of when in the Middle Ages, the, in Europe, we had the, the bubonic plague. And at some point, over a third of the European population perished to it. And that brought around the end of the, uh, um, of the economic regime of the time of feudalism, because suddenly there was no people left to work the land. The workers were all dead. The vi- lots of villages were dead, and that caused a, a lot of transformation. It was a it was big destruction, but it causes like the law of destruction. You know, you can read about it in the spirits book. Everything is destroyed and reborn. So, what is in the material side of life is just one aspect, and it's always in transformation. And so, the disease by coming and bringing. Uh, disease and death and it brings transformation as well and as a spirits we do carry on living so even if our body dies we go back to the spiritual world and then we we'll come again so we are not destroyed only our body is destroyed and so in a way that you know this this persistence we can see that it's shaking the world like trying to provoke some movement some change and i think that uh, in time, change will come. Yes, very, very well said. And I think once you look, when you look back maybe 10, 20, 30 years, then you will see the impact this has made. Like we, like we have seen in the past, really destructive calamities, which have 
always brought changes, right? And I mean, you might ask God, if God exists and we all believe he does, and if he loves us unconditionally and we also all believe that he does, then why does he put these kind of disasters on us, right? Well, and we know he will only do this because it will make sense and it will bring us forward. And at the end, it, it will do, although in the very moment of, of, of the disaster, when we are directly affected, we cannot see that. But, but from a higher point of view, or maybe from a timing point of view, then things will all make sense. And it helps certainly if you believe in this and if you trust in this, because then it's much easier to go through this, through this times of difficulties. Yeah, and I think that uh, it, it it helps to uh, when you have that belief is is to have that humility to understand that perhaps that there is uh, a bigger purpose in everything that happens, uh, even when when the things that are happening are not pleasant, uh, and that it's it's not wasted. Nothing is ever wasted. Uh, everything can that from the destruction, new life comes just like we can observe that in nature. So nature is, is our mirror, if you like, of, of God's intention. So you can have nature exuberant, and then you can have a hurricane, uh, a, a fire, uh, a freeze, whatever, and everything seems destroyed. And then everything is reborn again and flourishes even more and better. And that gives us hope that things will carry on. So it's just trying to see in there the examples to give us strength and courage and, and, like I say, humility to say, maybe we don't have all the answers, but this will pass. And, you know, hopefully something better will come out of it at the end. Ingo, you're in Germany, which was one of the first countries to have direct knowledge about spiritism. We know from various sources, including the May 1869 Revue Spirit, that Kardec studied in Switzerland, was fluent in German, that he translated various items, including the works of Fenelon, into German, and one of the first languages that the Spirit's book was translated into was German as well. But what can you tell us about how Spiritism has been received in Germany since the time of Kardec, and how is it nowadays? Yeah, this is a very good question, and a question where I will need some time to answer. So please bear with me, uh, because I, I knew this question would come, so I prepared a little bit. So, well, when we look back in Germany, we must say that for a long time, there has been famous personalities, philosophers, scientists, and also ordinary people in Germany who have studied spiritual and spiritualistic topics, topics in their everyday life. They often refer to themselves, not spiritists, but occultists at that time. And an example is the association of the German occultists from, 19, uh, from 1896, for example. So there were meetings for communication. When you look back to the history with the spiritual world, that uh, the second king of Prussia, Friedrich Wilhelm II, held with his sister, Wilhelmine, and that was in the middle of the 17th century already, 
This means even the king and his sister, they were holding mediumistic meetings. Not sure whether you know Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz. He wrote, he lived 1646 to 1716, and he wrote essays about uh, monadology. And this is basically about the, yeah, this is a very comparable uh, explanation to what we would call fluid today, you know, or fluidum. So Leibniz tried to make, to find a possible explanation whether there's life outside the body and whether this, the soul would survive the body after death. And then we, you know, Franz Anton Mesmer was a German from 1734 till 1815. He discovered and researched magnetism. Immanuel Kant, 1724 till 1804. Yeah, he was a famous philosopher. He wrote about dreams of a ghost seer, illustrated by dreams of metaphysics. And he, there was one question, are there ghosts? Do, do we survive the death? And then Gottfried Ephraim Lessing, probably you heard about him as well. He lived 1729 to 1781. Well, he was dealing, he was writing a book called How the Ancient Formed Death. So he was also looking at that. Then there is Jung Stilling, Justinus Kerner, many others. There was a book written by Dr. Justinus Kerner about the Seer of Prevost. So he was also somebody with uh, mediumistic faculties. Uh, Professor Friedrich Zöllner in 1834 till 1882, he was a scientist. He was trying to uh, prove the fourth dimension and occultism. So a lot has been done, Aksakov, Dupreel, and so on and so forth. So what we can see is basically that there have been many philosophers, science and scientists and so on who have been dealing with, uh, with the spiritist world, if you like, or with the spirit's world. And in 1853, the movement of table dancing, you know, there's this table moving that was seen heavily all around Germany and social events. And in parallel, there were mediumistic meetings and seances carried out. In 1880, there were many spiritistic associations in Germany and members were estimated at about 10,000 in 1880. And at the beginning of the 20th century, they recorded about 50 spiritist centers just in Berlin. That was, yeah, beginning of the 20th century. Well, later then, the spiritualist teaching, according to Ellen Kardec, was brought also over to Germany, as you said. Rightly, Kardec was also able to speak German, but somewhat Kardec lost its value in Germany because of the religious character. The uh, spiritism, according to Kardec, was known as the philosophical religious spiritualist movement. And for the Germans of that time, spiritualism was a true scientific channel. So the study of the media phenomenology was uh, for them very important from a scientific point of view, while Kardec's spiritualism or spiritism is 
or was at least viewed very much religious as a religious doctrine with more interest in the ethical quality of communication, which we know today is very important. But at that time, they looked at the scientific evidence. And this, at the end of the 19th century, resulted in a greater distance from the scientific side in Germany towards the spiritistic material. And then spiritism was almost completely eradicated by the Nazis, where uh, meetings were forbidden, spiritists were prosecuted, books were burned. So it came almost completely to an end and only in 1980 a new era began when when the seeds of spiritism came from Brazil and from Brazilian people who immigrated into Germany. And when you compare, I mean, today we have about 25 spiritist uh, associations all over Germany compared to 50 just in Berlin in 1880, for example, or in early 20th century. Then you see that, uh, yeah, the, the big difference. And what is actually surprising is that there's so little knowledge of the Germans' population today about spiritism, according to Kardec. Above all, the bad reputation of the name spiritism. If you talk about spiritism, then people believe that you are talking to dead people only and you pray to, I don't know, to Satan and evil and so on. And looking back, it must also be said that Germany in particular experienced really mysticism more than any other European countries in the 17th and 18th century. But nowadays, well, the picture is about materialism and atheism. And this is very, very astonishing. So, yeah, it's at the moment I can say also from the personal experience I have with our uh, association here in Munich called Path of Charity. Uh, it's an uphill battle, if you like. So we are also considered as a small sect, if you like. Yeah, uh, I think there's very strong parallels between that history in Germany and how it's been here in the UK. And you're mentioning that there were previously 50 spiritist groups in Berlin no, many years ago, but were they actually spiritist or spiritualist? Because at least here in the UK, there's there's been this mixture of the words, one meaning one, one meaning the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was more spiritualist, if you like, uh, because it was not always dedicated to Alan Kardec, but groups who were practicing mediumistic work, if you like, who were communicating with the spirits world. Right, and in that sense, yeah, spiritualist groups. Well, uh, another interesting fact is that uh, Romanticism and spiritualism in general in France and Britain uh, started from the influence of uh, German spiritualism and Romanticism. Romanticism is uh, nothing much more than... Um, is not much more than a, a sort of rejection of uh, mechanicism from the Enlightenment and the idea that everything could be explained 
through mechanical forces and, and mechanism. Uh, and uh, the first time I, I read um, Lessing's book, Erziehung des Menschen Geschlechtes, I had uh, an, an urge to translate it to Portuguese. And uh, for many years, about seven years, I, I uh, let this, this feeling grow in me uh, until I, I finally translated it a couple of years ago. Uh, the book is called um, The Education of Human Race in English. And it was a key book for all modern spiritualism in the West because Lessing developed purely rational arguments for the immortality of the soul and reincarnation. And he is probably the responsible for the, 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 the person we, we should consider most responsible for the idea of uh, a reincarnation that includes progress and that cannot be equated with metempsychosis or the return of a human soul to the animal world and, and so on. Uh, because of Lessing's book, uh, people like uh, Immanuel Kant and uh, Goethe, uh, very powerful intellectuals, also entertained the idea of reincarnation, which became rather common in the turn to the 19th century. Uh, another uh, intellectual, not, not German properly, but from, from the German culture, was Pestalozzi, the master of Allan Kardec. So we can suppose or we can infer that some influence from this uh, spiritualistic sources in German influenced uh, or, or came to Allan Kardec. Yeah, in that when you look back, you have a little bit the feeling that uh, there were quite a number of quite developed spirits at that time, let's say around Germany, and and I wonder why they then decided to uh, to have Kardec uh, moving to to uh, Paris at that time. Uh, okay, we don't know what what happened and what's behind all, but it would have made sense at least from the logical point of view to build on what has been already brought here. But yeah, I don't know, very interesting. And we see even France, it didn't it didn't pick up. It then needed almost to die. And then it went to Brazil. And from Brazil, it started to come back now. And there it's very strong, yeah. But yeah, but if, I think it's interesting because uh, Kardec being in Paris at that time, there was a big culture of, uh, particularly like from South America, people would go to university in Paris. So they would leave South America. It would be a place where people would go to study. And I know even people would come from the Middle East to Paris to study the students uh, and so on. So it became a bit of a hub, like a place to go to university in uh, Paris. And I think that perhaps that is why Kardec was in Paris because those young people that went to study there and took it back uh, to their many different countries. That, that's how it came to Brazil, wasn't it? it was through the students that had studied in Paris, in, in France, and they, they were all fluent in French because French was then the language of, of the culture and diplomacy. And so it went back, and I know even to places 
uh, unexpectedly, I read one an article in even in Tehran that the students had been in Paris and they went back to Tehran and they were discussing the Spirits book in French there and you know in, in Lebanon and places like that in the Middle East where French was was accessible. So it was like a, a moment of spreading, if you like, perhaps. I feel like in Germany there was like a rooting, a rooting like to, to let something grow and then like the seeds went, from, flew from France all around and then they found fertile ground in Brazil, for example. They didn't find fertile ground everywhere, but in Brazil they found fertile ground. Exactly, and it seems that the the scientific part, which was the strong part or the scientific view, which was very strongly applied in Germany, uh, was not the one we needed. You know, we needed really more this moral, ethical or religious part. And uh, okay, it didn't even break through in France. It really needed to go to Brazil where uh, where people were ready to, to, to take this and to understand and to drive this. The, the main reason why spiritism uh, spread in Latin America is uh, because it was uh, actually developed in, in, in France and France was very influential over all the Latin world at the time. Uh, but a, another interesting point uh, is that uh, here in Brazil we sometimes question why we lost the scientific aspect and uh, people deeply regret what some people believe to be the, the corruption or the uh, impoverishment of spiritism in Brazil to an um, exclusively religious movement. Um, but uh, we could also interpret it, interpret it uh, another way and to consider it a, a particular way of flourishing um, not uh, probably the, the ultimate stage that spiritism should achieve uh, because we are in the middle of the process. So maybe we, we had to start from a philosophical ground and develop in, in a scientific community in the middle of 19th century to come to a, a sort of uh, religious expression, particularly in Brazil, to uh, see another wave now in, in the 21st century. Mm, I, would, I would agree. Um, when you look at humanity, then my view is, I mean, we always say we are developing here reincarnation by reincarnation, and it's a, a, it's a moral development on the one side. On the other side, it's an intellectual intellectual or maybe scientific development, how you call it. And my view is that humanity has developed on the scientific side already very, very strong, while we are lacking so much on the moral and ethical part. And this is the part which is mostly supported by the view, by the Brazilian spiritism, how it's lived at the moment. So I think this is the part we were lacking and we are still lacking most. So that's why why I think it's exactly the right way to push it. Yeah, it's uh, it's like they say, is it, I can't remember what it says, but it, perhaps in the gospel it says, in order for us to fly, we are like a bird that needs both wings. 
the wing of intellectual development and the wing of moral development. We need both in order to be able to fly. And it might be that in some experiences, in some incarnations, we have opportunities developing one side more than the other. Uh, but uh, if we develop only one side, we are not going to be able to fulfill uh, our complete flight. And it's, I think it's really interesting because when we look at the things like in Europe, uh, the history and the, the, the power of science and intellectual without moral guidance, the destruction it can bring about. And I think that uh, people who bear that in mind are quite fearful almost of science because of the way science could uh, bring about destruction. But science is neutral. It's, it is your moral guidance which will decide uh, how, you, how you take it forward. So I think like science is just like mediumship, like like your athleticism. It's it's just a neutral uh, ability and uh, possibility. But what we do with it, then that's our responsibility, our moral responsibility. Mm, I, I strongly agree. However, when we see now that the spiritism is being brought from Brazil, we also see that the... Uh, the way this strong focus on the religious part is not completely compatible in Europe here, right? So, so we need to turn this a bit back to the uh, to the scientific part or more to the to the rational part, if you like, in order to make people understand and buy into it and accept it, which which is another challenge, if you like. But I think we are working on that and we have understood that and we take the challenge, don't we? Yeah, uh, I 100% agree with that. Uh, and I don't, we cannot build things based on, uh, you know, do this because I'm telling you or because somebody else told you. We need to take responsibility. And in order to decide to act one way or another, and to have that information, to have uh, that philosophical content so that we can make those moral judges for ourselves. Uh, it, it is a time of that where no longer we can be saying, oh, I did this because somebody told me or, or because whether that person is a priest or is a spirit or is, you know, somebody, you know, say, no, I did this because in my judgment, it seemed to be the best thing to do, the fairest thing to do, the thing that was aligned with the law of love. Exactly. And especially when things are getting really difficult, you know, when you are at the end of your life, then you need to have something inside which you are completely convinced of, right? If, if, you, if you leave your body and you die and you then wake up and see, oops, what's happening now? And you have not a clue on the other side that, that you are an immortal spirit and you have no clue that, that how you can bring how you can, let's say, tune yourself up then and bring you to the higher level of the spiritual world. This, this kind of understanding should be known to everyone, right? And it gives so much hope that you know, when you know that you are immortal spirit, that there's reincarnation and uh, we will eventually all develop to the, to the good and to the very good and to very strong and powerful spirits. So it's really a pity that so that's so difficult to bring such message across. But yeah. Yeah, I am reminded by something that I take no credit to. It's a presentation that I saw by Dr. Peter Fennick, the 
emeritus psychiatrist here in London. And he does a presentation in which he says, the only certainty of what we all say is, is that one day we die. We all know that. We all accept that. He says, and dying is like going on a trip, on a journey. He said, if we are booking a holiday and we think we're going somewhere, we buy the guidebook. We study it. We see what what we need to put in our suitcase. Uh, we make lots of preparations. What money can we take? Is our passport okay? You know, we make all these plans to go on our holiday, to go on our trip. She says, so why going to the spiritual world, you know, dying? We don't do the same preparation. He said, this is very in, uh, amazing uh, or curious side of humanity that you're not curious to investigate and be prepared for this big journey that's coming. And he says it in a lighthearted way, but he is challenging us. Why are we not looking? This is, you know, uh, uh, for the answers so that we, we can then confidently be prepared for, for the moment of our death. Because we throw yes, away... that's a wonderful... Yeah. A very wonderful way to explain that. And then maybe to add to that, I've, I've written, I think it was a psychographed note of a spirit and he takes all this, this the, the fear way, you know, people fear, okay, dead is coming and then everything is dark, right? And then this, this spirit explains the moment you are on the other side, you are freed from the body who has, because he has gone older, things are getting more difficult, you cannot move, this is difficult, that is difficult, you lose your tears, your hairs and everything, right? But it's only the body and then out of a sudden the body is, is away and then this, this spirit, he jumps up and the moment he jumps up, it's like really moving hundreds of meters into the high, into the heaven, if you like. That's how he feels and how he enjoys this inside. And this way of enjoying is really Yeah, taking all the fear away. There's nothing to fear about. It's it's being relieved, if you like, nothing else. And going back home. And going back to what you were saying, Annie, perhaps we need to have a version of TripAdvisor for the afterlife. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, it's, it's, it's just uh, thinking... Because it, it's almost like, like you know, the, the book, that the, the work they've done are with people who are dying and interviewing people through the process of dying in the hospice and things. And people having, like, the, the issue around seeing the dead relatives coming to fetch them over a period of days. And where's the interview? And then we said, well, why, why are people not telling us that you could see, you know, the dead coming to fetch you and things like that? And then what the patient said, well, nobody asked me. <laughs> Or people then say, oh, I don't want to say anything in case they think I'm crazy or so. But he's saying it was really interesting because in their research, they identified that this was a very common occurrence for people who were having a slow death, like in the hospice, that they at some point started seeing their dead relatives, their husband, wife, parents or uncles, and that they started coming and saying, next week we're coming to fetch you, be prepared, you know, kind of thing. So it was like a gradual process and uh, that it made no difference whether the person's, what person's religion was or if they were atheist, people had the same experience because he said this shows this is a human experience. It's independent of culture. It's independent of belief. And they reproduced the experiments in uh, both uh, Holland and uh, Japan, I believe, or maybe Ireland as well. And they found the same 
there were the same findings really sort of a scientific research in that way sort of from psychiatrists saying what are people experiencing when they're having this process of death I found that absolutely fascinating because it this is how it should be we are humans this is our human experience so our culture our religion they're just part of our temporary uh, sort of environment in which we find ourselves immersed but what is a, a truly human experience should transcend the culture and the religion. Yeah, and this shows me that f for me, it's it simply takes a few more years and then scientific will buy into this, you know. This is like Galileo once said, okay, the earth is 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 a, a ball, it's, it's not a plate and nobody believes, even though we had strong arguments, right? And the arguments are there. It's just that, that the, uh, we need the critical mass of scientific people who, who will at the end say, okay, yes, right? That's, I believe, I agree. And, and, and I, I risk talking about that because I think many people are in doubt already, but they are not, they are afraid to talk about these things and yeah, but I think it's just a matter of time. Yeah, exactly. I, I would agree with that. I, I think we do have the evidence. People doubt that, but we actually do have the evidence. What we lack is actually the, the cultural shift that allows us to appreciate the evidence and stop denying it. So thinking now about moving from one country to another and Ingo, you were saying how uh, spiritism returned in a way to, to Germany in the 1980s, just like it did here in the UK. We have a question for what does spiritism say about, which is, what does spiritism say about immigration? I think that I'll start off by saying I have in, in this incarnation the experience of immigration twice over. So I was born in Argentina. Uh, into a family of immigrants from the UK. And when I was 11, we moved to Brazil, where then I became an immigrant to Brazil from Argentina. And, and then I emigrated back to the UK. So, okay, I had a UK passport, but I had not been brought up here. So I, although uh, I have sort of uh, genetically the appearance of a very British person, a lot of my uh, culture was very Brazilian and I came to, to live in the UK. So one of the things that uh, when you think about immigration, it always existed. As, as human spirits, we are on the move. We are always looking uh, for improvement, for better pastures, for more opportunity, for more food. It's a natural kind of thing. I mean, I'm not an anthropologist, but I can observe this, that from time immemorial, human beings are on the move. and I think that, that the idea of immigration, um, some of the ideas that it brings up in me, because I, I speak, I have been speaking over the, over the years to many people, particularly who immigrate perhaps from Brazil, and the issues around immigration sometimes uh, bring up issues around uh, opportunity on one hand, but prejudice or difficulties, um, discrimination on the other hand. So again, it's, it's about how you experience that situation. So some people, they're immigrants and they would like to be integrated into their new country. They like to be accepted 
and recognized as part of that country, but perhaps they suffer some prejudice or discrimination, and it's very frustrating uh, to feel that and to feel that you're making an effort, but you don't fit in. On the other hand, you're thinking, oh, this new country, I have so many opportunities, I can do this, I can study, I can make money, I can have a family, while in my previous country, though I had persecution or difficulties. And uh, it doesn't matter. I remember Divaldo Franco used to come here pretty much every year and always the, the queue of people coming to ask him questions every time for sure. There were at least a couple of people who asked exactly the same question. They say, oh, I'm Brazilian. I came here. I don't know if I should stay here in the UK or should I go back to Brazil? What shall I do? He says, do whatever you like, whether you're in the UK or in Brazil, you take with you in your suitcase all your troubles and all your problems. You transfer them to any address that you go to. So you can move around if you like, but you can't move away from yourself. So sometimes immigration, you know, people are trying to move to, to start a new life, to reinvent themselves, trying to get away from the troubles they bring inside. So that's not going to happen because that goes with you wherever you go. So. Immigration is, uh, again, depends on how you look at it. It can be a wealth of opportunity, of peace and development for a lot of people. It can be challenging and difficulty and having, you know, uh, missing the, the original country, feelings of not belonging. But at the end of the day, we are all spirits. We have all lived in different places at different times. And sometimes we feel the impulse to go back to where we've lived before, where might, we might have had a good life. And we feel that impulse. We want to be there because we want to, in some way, recreate that good life. But sometimes we're coming now with a different language and a different presentation, and it's difficult. And it's all part of our opportunity to learn and develop. So immigration is quite a, a complex uh, topic, but I would say... We are always on the move as human beings because we are motivated to try to find a better place uh, and more food, more peace. And uh, we will carry on moving around. We are not stopping anytime soon as humans, I don't think. Yeah, I agree with Anne uh, from the historical perspective. Moving and traveling uh, is the rule and borders are the innovation, the, 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 the newest thing uh, that uh, was added to this process. But uh, they are uh, innovations of a couple thousand years and they already uh, are structured and they already work. So it, it is a very complex uh, process, but um, we could see it uh, from the perspective of of change. So when you move from a country to another, you know that you face difficulty, you lose your friends and your community, maybe your, your religious group, your worship place or whatever is important for you. And uh, you will be facing difficulties and obstacles uh, everywhere, starting from the language to small details that you cannot perceive in the culture. Um, but uh, when you choose to do so, uh, it shows that uh, to some extent this radical change 
is a part of your future and a part of your life that you already embraced. So uh, I think it, it can be quite challenging, but uh, to, to change one's life and to, to change um, your country or what other sort of radical changes you may make, they uh, tell a lot about you and how you are prepared for this sort of radical change. Now, where would we be if, for example, the Romans stayed in Rome, if the Dutch and Portuguese spice traders never got onto a ship, if the Chinese silk traders never came to Europe? Yeah, and maybe when you look from the from the other side, what are immigrants teaching us? I mean, uh, we we see very often in Germany, but for sure this is happening in every country. Oh, we want to protect our nation. We don't want to have so many immigrants and so on and so forth. Well, Spiritism is teaching us that we are all brothers and sisters and this incarnation we might yeah we might have chosen germany and next one brazil the other one maybe china and so on and once i'm a male then i'm a female and so on and so forth because i need to go through different experience i need to understand different cultures and so on and so forth and and i think it's really really important that we open our hearts to any immigrant and that we see really each other as as a big family and even if the one speaks a different language and looks different has a different color uh, well he still has similar problems he wants to he wants to feed his family he cares after the after the children and uh, everyone Everybody wants to have a good good life, sort of. So, uh, yeah, and, and that's that's one of the lessons we really need to learn. And and this this goes through. We talked about the vaccination. Um, we talked about the uh, the refugees and so on. So, yeah, there's still a lot we need to develop further, if you like. Right? We are not really there yet. But I think more and more people understand this and realize this. And through globalization, through the internet, and through whatever we learn from the US, from the UK, from here, from there, from all the different countries, that uh, every everywhere there are human beings. And uh, well, I think this is helping us to further integrate more and more. And the moment we can reduce this power play, this you have in the different nations, then I think we will get over that. And my hope is that with 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 the world of regeneration, we will be there hopefully soon. It, it makes me think about uh, in whose interest uh, is it to uh, emphasize the differences, to separate the people, to make them enemies within. You know, like here, sometimes we see like the media, of course, the media represents a group of interests that that put things. So sometimes the scapegoats are the immigrants. Oh, the immigrants, they're taking all the houses, they're doing this. Other times, they oh, the working class, oh, the working class, they're not working and they're causing all the troubles for the country. So it's always accusing somebody else, a particular group, in order that the group that has the power is not challenged 
about what they're doing. So then they get the people all fighting against each other. You know what I mean? Is the the Roman it was in the Ro- the Roman rule divide and conquer, and uh, I think that quite often that that can come into the narrative. Or why do uh, why does the media suddenly uh, pr- um, have this negativity about people who are refugees or, or, or immigrants? What, where is that coming from? It's serving the power somewhere, and uh, not to be totally cynical, but we have to question that sometimes. You know. Where are the narratives coming from and who are they serving? Over the past few months, there have been unprecedented levels of heat waves, flooding, and fires in the Northern Hemisphere, while there have been severe winters and flooding in the Southern Hemisphere. In America, almost all of the West Coast and New York on the East, as well as many regions of Canada, have faced heat waves and wildfires that have burned through many towns across both countries and fires have ravaged many parts of the Mediterranean and northern Europe, with severe flooding affecting most countries in Europe, including the UK, Germany and Belgium. Australia, India and Japan have also had heat waves followed by torrential rain and floods, displacing thousands of people. All of this is due to climate change. Pro-climate campaigners have been talking about these issues for over 50 years, including the naturalist Sir David Attenborough, His Royal Highness Prince Charles, as well as his late father Prince Philip, and in the past few years the Nobel Prize winner Greta Thunberg has helped children around the world also become interested in these matters. And of course we've talked about this in a previous episode as well. Fashion designers, car manufacturers, food producers, makers of electronic devices, construction companies, and even media producers have been looking at ways to reduce our carbon footprint. But the resources needed for many things we use each day still require mining, farming, petrochemicals, and wood. However, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, has said that we only have a few years to take drastic corrective action to counteract this man-made disaster. As individuals, we can easily feel that we are perhaps powerless with regard to something so huge that it affects the whole planet. So, what do you think we can or should be doing right now to help the planet? Okay, first of all, I think... All of these disasters and the climate change, again, whoever is directly affected deserves our pity and our support. I think this is really important. And then the question is, why are these things happening? And they will lead us then to what has uh, what has to change. Well, uh, well, I think, again, we have a multitude of factors. On the one hand, when I look from the from the spiritism point of view, then I see the law of cause and effect, which certainly applies. And this laws of law of cause and effect applies individually, but also for groups, for people, and also for the incarnated humanity. So, uh, and if we are all honest and look look and think about what we are doing, how we are living, then we all know this already. It's simply a consequence happening of our behavior, if we like. Uh, 
And I think more or less, we also know all what needs to be done, right? Uh, and again, it's just a question of doing it. And as the whole humanity is affected and industries are affected, this and that, then the question is, who who is who is taking the measures first? What measures cost more, what cost less? Maybe it's better if the neighbor starts first before I do, because then I maybe suffer less or I carry less pain and so on and so forth. And at the end, it comes down to, yeah, we all as humanity need to change and especially the Western world needs to change strongly the way of life. And everybody needs to look really at his way of living, his way of love, of of uh, working, his way of, let's say, buying, his way, yeah, of, I mean, this is affecting almost any aspect of our life and we really need to transform. And the more we transform, yeah, the less we will see the effect and certainly there will be a, a time delay between because what we do now will make an impact maybe in, I don't know, five years, 10 years, 20 years, but well, you need to start. And for me, I see a similar analogy to if somebody is smoking, right? When you smoke, you know it's it's not good for your health, but you will continue. And when you don't stop smoking at a certain time, maybe you start getting cancer or other diseases. Well, and then you will be forced to stop, right? And now uh, nature is forcing us as well and is strongly forcing forcing us and giving us a strong hint. And yeah, it's a wake-up call, if you like. And we know the lessons are coming. And if we don't follow and don't want to learn, the next time they come back, but they come back even stronger and stronger. It's the same here. So it's as simple as that. Uh, yeah. And still the question is then, well, many people are affected where you have the feeling, do they really deserve this or others may be the cause of it. When you look at the big picture and from a multitude of reincarnation, uh, I strongly believe that uh, uh, heaven, God, the, the good spirits, they are treating everybody very fair. Nobody is getting more than he has to get. So this is a completely fair system. Yeah, that's, that's how I see this. Yeah, I, I agree with Ingo that um, the key words here are cause and effect. Because from the divine perspective, the perspective of providence or natural order or divine order, there are no actual accidents. Everything happens as it should happen. And uh, even social movements and political process or even free will happens exactly according to what is expected by divine providence and, and, and the higher order. So there are no real accidents for nature. They are accidents for us. They are dramas or tragedies for us who are experiences, the, the aftershocks and the side effects of uh, the, the bad deeds that we actually committed. So we, we have to focus in, 
on these issues, uh, on the consequences for our neighbors, for the animals and, and plants in this planet, and for ourselves of uh, neglecting or uh, corrupting the, the natural resources and, and the natural processes involved uh, in, in the balance of this planet. Uh, if we choose uh, to ignore them or, or to accelerate the destruction of the planet, for the higher order there will be no catastrophe or, or no tragedy or no accident. And uh, I'm quite sure that uh, spirits or God may not applaud it, but they are not worried or concerned about the results of, of these actions. But uh, we should be responsible for them and we, we should be more um, conscientious about uh, the sort of future we are um, constructing for ourselves. Yeah, and I think it, it for me, it, it brings about the idea of an awakening of our consciousness. Because when we are asleep, we just see our immediate gratification. We don't see the, the long-term ramifications of our choices. Uh, but once we start waking up and seeing it, we can't not see it. It's like somebody's put the light on and we can see clearly. And... I think that uh, although sometimes the language is all very uh, dramatic and apop apocalyptic, I think it, it comes more to me like an invitation to say, okay, you've tried this method of indulgence where you think you can take everything to your pleasure uh, with no consideration for nature or for others, and this is the consequences. So you have now the opportunity to change this and to be more measured in your participation, to work more in harmony with one another and, uh, and with nature and uh, not be so egocentric, so greedy, uh, so indulging. Um, it is a, a moral challenge above all. But again, it comes as, as, a, as a mat almost a material invitation because our material lives are threatened by it. So the invitation comes on a material level, but it's really calling us to a moral transformation. Because once we awaken to that moral transformation, then it's easy to make the changes. Because then we no longer feel that it's, we are losing out on something or that we are missing out on something, but rather that we are gaining, that we are gaining in light and peace and, and development. So it, it's, it, it's, I think it's really interesting how these things come. Uh, we cannot ignore them because we will live with the consequences of our actions. And each one of us that participates in the consumer world, we are, we are each one a drop in the ocean. But the ocean only exists because all the drops are there. So then we feel so small and powerless. We say, well, it's just, I'm just one drop in the ocean. Yes, but if all of us drops in the ocean, do our part, then that will change. And I think that uh, we can't uh, be uh, thinking, oh, uh, if they're not doing it, I'm not doing it. Or if the government's not doing it, I'm not doing it. You're thinking, okay, my responsibility is what am I doing? What can I do? 
And sometimes maybe little things we can choose to change individually. And each one can look at, at their own uh, way of living and think, okay, I'm going to make this change. This is my way of, of contributing. Um, and then it, it will create, I think, uh, like you say, a critical mass. If enough people are doing things, it will transform it because um, we all want to, to live well and in peace and have a, you know, uh, a stable environment. Um, and it's, we can't go exploiting other parts. So everything is interconnected, yeah? So I remember very well when my daughter was studying geography and I learned this, I never knew before. But yeah, the hurricanes that appear in the Caribbean, they're formed on the coast of Africa. And they cross the Atlantic, picking up the water, and they come and they might hit some islands of the Caribbean, or they might hit Florida, or they might hit America. And they come with great destruction. But for some parts of the nature there, that destruction is necessary. It creates a, a renewal, and it shows how the fishes are hiding in the mangroves. The hurricane comes, and then that's their time to reproduce. So there's, the world is all interconnected. So what's happening in the southern hemisphere, in the current, in the sea, is affecting our climate in Europe. What's happening in the North Pole is affecting. We are, so we cannot have the illusion that we can just be in our little garden and we are, uh, it doesn't matter what's happening elsewhere. We are all interconnected. And what we do in our little garden will affect in some way the other side of the world. As, as we grow and develop as human beings, we start to have that perception of, the, of humanity as a family and the planet as our planet together, all together. And then that will, will change. So I think uh, we can contribute with our little bits. If we can do big bits, all the better. But we sh I think we shouldn't be uh, depressed or sad or, or feeling you know, uh, low thoughts about it. Because every little bit that everybody does, does make a difference in the end. No, obviously, Spiritism talks a lot about inner transformation and how we should treat each other with kindness and respect. Do you think Spiritism should be talking more about the environment? I'm not really sure whether we need to. I think when we talk about inner transformation, when we talk about this ethical and moral changes and rules we should follow, then, uh, yeah, the nature, how you deal with it, uh, comes automatically with it. Because if you if you have gone through this inner transformation, you will consider about everything. You will have understood that the uh, that the insects, that the that the flowers, that everything is made by the divine providence, and everything is there for reason. And uh, well when you have understood also the reincarnation process then you know whatever you leave here on earth when you when you leave whatever is here you will come back and you will face the results of your own of your own past lives and so on so i think it's not really necessary but uh, obviously it's a good example of applying spiritism if you like and maybe to add Certainly, we can also, with our spiritual forces, with the forces our thoughts are generating, we can also help nature, help nature calm down and recover and so on and so forth. But uh, so there are many aspects to that. 
Yeah, I completely agree. I think that's the, the inner transformation and moral transformation. They automatically impact on every other aspect of life. It is impossible that uh, your moral conscience will not change the way you behave uh, in, in your job or uh, in, in family business or uh, the way uh, you vote. So I think we are still thinking in, in a very um, Cartesian way of thinking where everything is very separated and we have religion which have, has nothing to do with science, which has nothing to do with your practical daily life. But uh, the big uh, shift is to understand that all these things, they are the same process of spiritual development, the same learning, the same opportunity of growing as uh, individuals, as souls, as spirits. And uh, there is no part of our experience that will remain unaffected by this transformation and, and this uh, growth. Maybe just to add one more thing, what I find very interesting is that, especially regarding the climate change, it's a young generation who is pushing, right? It's a young generation who is who is providing the wake-up call for us. And it's the older generation who is hesitating because they are afraid to lose so much to to change. But uh, And I find this wonderful that this young generation is really fighting for that. And we need to support as much as possible and to follow and and to convince people, yeah, to speak up like we should speak up also for our, let's say, spiritist understanding about you know, how things are actually, right? About our spiritist knowledge, let's say, about how the world is and how life is and how the spiritual world is. And I think just adding on to that is just that I that um, thought that uh, our everything that exists that we built it existed first in our thoughts that in our thoughts we we created the project that we transformed into whatever we have here on earth so we can begin to change that by changing our thoughts by visualizing by making a new plan of how we could be doing things. And we can do this, all of us. And that will transform because sometimes I, for me, I speak, I'm so immersed in this material world that I end up being confused or blinded to the fact that this is all uh, transient. I've become so embedded in my materiality that I, I, I sort of buy into this idea that this is it. But actually, this is all passing. This is all transient. And our contribution through our thought process of what we build in the world is where it all starts. And to start to uh, engage and give an opportunity for our minds and our creativity to start to envisage a different world, the world that we would like to see, a world of more equality, fraternity, love and you know peace and light 
And, and if we can start to visualize that, eventually everybody else can as well. And of course, there are always the leaders who can see this way ahead of any of us, the more advanced spirits. But comes a point where it has to be the majority of the population to start to wake up. So we don't want to live like this anymore. We want to live in a different way. Yes, and practically we could do that every day. We could include that visualization in our morning prayer, for example, in the evening prayer, that we include the earth, the nature, and how we want to live. And yeah, the more we do, and from a spiritual level, they can see this. They can see these pictures. They can see the lights coming with our prayers. And this will make an impact, believe it or not. And we can think about the powerful image of Jesus calming the storm. And if we apply it to our level, we, of course, we cannot calm the storm, but uh, acting together, we, we may make a small difference uh, in, in, in the big scenario, not only uh, through our material acts, like uh, saving uh, energy or avoiding to use plastic and so on, but also uh, on, on, on the spiritual level itself. And, you know, it's true. My kids came home one day and they said, Mommy, we are not using plastic bags anymore. They're banned in our house. <laughs> and I, I was thinking, oh, yeah, maybe this is a good idea. Let's stop using plastic. It was just thinking about not actually doing it. But they came in and they said, OK, this is it. No more. We are in this house. We have no more plastic bags. End of. So the young, the young generation, it, it, they, they have this energy to come and, okay, uh, yeah, I change as well. Yeah, yeah, no more plastic bags. Okay, done. Um, and it, it, it wasn't that difficult, you know. But, <laughs> and I say, oh, my gosh, I think I've been thinking about this for ages. I never did anything. They just came and boom, boom, did it. So, yeah, the, young, the younger generation, they have that energy of the youth. And they also have uh, that motivation that's coming because they're coming from the spiritual world not so long ago. So they're coming with the ideas of, you know, how to improve things quite strong. And we are just caught up in our old ways sometimes. Uh, and it's good that they're coming and pushing us and making us wake up. Yeah, I think uh, also because they are not used to make it the wrong way for decades. And uh, the, the, this generation does not necessarily correspond to, to better spirits, but uh, spirits that are not uh, used to these vices and, and to these bad habits for, for many decades, as we are. Uh, we, we have bad habits, like uh, the previous generation had the, the, the habit of smoking, which is uh, almost disappearing uh, in, in my age, for example. So, which talking... is also a good signal because things are improving gradually, but they are. So we will overcome this difficulties as well. Adam, back to you. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, talking about transformation and how things have changed over time, did a physical Brexit ever take place? Recent investigations, which have lasted for more than a decade, have uncovered archaeological evidence of what life was like on a prehistoric landmass called Doggerland, which connected Britain to mainland Europe. 
With thanks to amateur archaeologists, items such as 50,000-year-old tools, mammoth teeth, petrified droppings, and even human skulls have helped give a clearer indication as to how the Neanderthals of the time lived, and the animals that were native to the region, as well as evidence of a tsunami that occurred 8,000 years ago, which was the final step in separating Britain from the rest of Europe. We know that the social and political impact of Brexit has been quite severe, but no, hopefully Scotland, Wales and Ireland don't get too influenced by this. However, like we talked about, climate change is continuing and we never know where we'll be flooded next. Perhaps Hadrian's Wall may one day become Hadrian's Channel. Did Pythagoras copy his work from someone else? An old Babylonian rock containing details regarding the measurements and boundaries of a piece of land has been found to use a rule commonly known as Pythagorean triples. The rock, known as Psi-427, was inscribed with these calculations about 3,700 years ago, between 1900 and 1600 BC which would date it around 1,000 years before the Greek mathematician was even born, and even predates Moses and the Exodus by around 300 years. Other rocks have also been found and analysed to contain other complex mathematical calculations, as well as details on trigonometry, and these were also from around 1,000 to 1,500 years before the Greeks documented it. So, did Pythagoras and other mathematicians get lucky? Or like children nowadays, did they just use a tablet? I know, it's a bad joke. <laughs> <laughs> it's now time once again for our moment of reflection with Anne. Anne, what do you have, with, have for us? Uh, I'm just going to do a little reading from the book um, Child of God. Uh, it's by the spirit Joanna de Angelis. Uh, written by Divaldo Franco. And the message for our reflection today is message 15. It's called God's Blessing. And it goes so. Your thoughts are seeds that you sow in the soil of life. Each will bear fruit according to their own kind. The harmony between sowing and reaping is perfect. Your life is what you think. Life will respond to your thoughts with events, sensations or emotions. Positive and stimulating thoughts will uplift you and will be expressed in life situations. Negative and depressing thoughts will oppress and distress you. They will make you bitter and will affect your behaviour. So, banish the ill or dismal thoughts you have been harbouring up to now. Set yourself free to plough the soil of your heart so that you can express the perfect blessing of God. Cherish thoughts of love and you will be surrounded by waves of tenderness and affection. Dwell in thoughts of peace and the harmony of life will echo within you. Preserve healthy thoughts 
and you will feel strong and complete. Even if you may eventually experience a slight illness, you will not be affected as a whole. Think about prosperity, both material and spiritual, and you shall have God's blessing, which is essential for life. Think, and you shall live according to the thought waves you cast out. Well, friends, that is it for yet another episode of Insightfully Speaking. Please remember to contact us to let us know your thoughts, comments, birthday requests, and any question you have for what does Spiritism say about. You can find all our contact details as well as the links to the previous episodes of this show on the Kardec Group website, www.kardec.org.uk, as well as on the Kardec Group social media accounts. So it just leaves me to give a big thank you to our guest, Ingo Meyer, to give a thank you to my co-hosts, Anne Sinclair and Umberto Schubert, and to thank anyone out there who's been brave enough to listen to the whole show. My name's Adam Osborne, and I hope you, you can join us once more next time for another episode of Insightfully Speaking, looking at the world from a spiritist perspective. Mm-hmm.